My name is Will Spencer, and you're listening to the Renaissance of Men podcast. My guest this week is the author of The Case for Christian Nationalism. Please welcome Dr. Stephen Wolfe. You are the Renaissance. What can I say? I'm an ideas guy. To me, ideas are like toys. I can pick them up, turn them over, examine them from all sides. I like to take them apart and put them together again. Oh, and sometimes I smash one idea into another and see what's left. I spend a lot of time doing this, probably more time than I realize. It's like a hobby. And in the past year in Christendom, there's no single idea that's been under more intense discussion than Christian nationalism. There's just one problem. No one really seems to know what it is. On one hand, you have the people who hear those two words and hate them separately. Therefore, the combination of the words must be even worse, kind of like one plus one equals negative three. On the other hand, you have the people who hear those two words and really love them both. And so together, they obviously must be even better like peanut butter and jelly, and bananas. These two groups have one thing in common. Neither can agree on what they're talking about. They're both reacting knee-jerk fashion to a term and the connotations that it triggers in their minds. Emphasis on triggers. And so you take these groups, who are natural enemies of each other, and you put them in a jar, and you shake them up real good, and then you unleash them on Twitter, and, well, let's just say that civil respectful dialogue does not result. It's saying something when some of the typically wisest voices in Christendom avoid the discussion entirely, attempt to redefine the terms, introduce new ones, and more. And yet, the term Christian nationalism is the one that's in play. Whether or not Christians like it, that's what the media, including Rob Reiner, has chosen for us. And considering some other terms like Puritan and Impressionist and Yankee also began as insults, we could do worse. There's just one problem— many people are still pretending that Christian nationalism is this ill-defined thing, that no one can possibly know what it is, and we should therefore abandon the pursuit entirely and retreat to our prayer closets and wait for the rapture or whatever. Except that isn't true. There is a definition of Christian nationalism, it turns out. A pretty good one. It's not the only possible definition. There could be others. But so far as I know, there's at least one solid, well-thought-out, well-researched, and plausible definition of Christian nationalism we can discuss, if only so we can agree on terms. The only obstacle is, it requires people learning how to read. Which brings me to my guest this week. His name is Dr. Stephen Wolfe, and he's the author of The Case for Christian Nationalism, an almost 500-page book, wherein he lays out the aforementioned definition of Christian nationalism. Now, remember what I said about liking big ideas? So here's a thing. Rather than doing a Leroy Jenkins into the Twitter debate about Christian nationalism, I actually wanted to find out what it meant for myself. I have this thing for due diligence, you know? So I did the reading. And you know what I discovered? One of the most intriguing ideas about real-world applications of Christendom that I've ever experienced. Dr. Wolf conceives of government and culture as two halves of an interlocking whole that orient individuals and an entire nation towards their highest good in Christ. Government and culture do not themselves save, but they point us to what does, Christ and his church. Now that is an incredible idea. I turned that idea over in my mind, looked at it from all angles and said, people might not like it, but given what people like these days, modern tastes are not at all a barometer. Then I took the idea and smashed it into other ideas, like, I don't know, the myth of neutrality? 
and I realize that if I believe, truly believe what I say I do about Christ being Lord, the Alpha and Omega, the way, the truth, and the life, and the only way to come to the Father, wouldn't it make sense that I would support, with my whole heart, a national arrangement that encouraged others towards the same? If love is defined as desiring the good for somebody, and I truly desire the good for them, is not Christ the ultimate good for them? Isn't saying that faithfully obeying the second half of the greatest commandment? And I'm no theologian, but maybe even the first half too? Yes, I think it just might be. So why shouldn't I be in support of Christian nationalism? Well, I should, in the form of Stephen's case at least, or something like it, or informed by the same spirit. And that's when I realize that everyone today arguing about Christian nationalism has little or perhaps no idea what they're talking about. It's not an ill-defined term. One man has put forth the courageous effort to define it affirmatively, as in it could look like this. And he's not saying it from up on high from some fancy infallible chair. Dr. Wolf seems to me to just be a regular guy saying, hey, I've thought about it and I think this might work. Except that idea is not what people are talking about. They're talking about their fears and their projections, their worries and their concerns, their virtues that they're signaling, their allegiances that they're counter-signaling, and so much more. Meanwhile, guys, 60 million abortions and counting, a $34 trillion national debt and growing, 10,000 migrants per day at the border, another $96 billion was just voted on for foreign aid to Ukraine, and the porn industry in America alone is now worth $13 billion. I could go on, but people are still arguing. They argue about terms and perceptions, feasibility and electability, etc. And I can't tell if people are playing violins in the Titanic or fiddles in the flames of Rome. Take your pick. But I know what I can do. I can do my part to spark a real discussion about this big idea, Stephen's big idea. You don't have to like it. You don't even have to agree. But I encourage you to put down TikTok or Instagram or even Twitter and pick up Stephen's book and read. Do the reading. Turn his idea over in your mind. See if it might show you a new way to conceive of your nation and how to orient it towards Christ. And that's what I wanted this interview to be. A chance to cut through the noise and give you a chance to hear in depth about a book that I pray will change how you think about government, culture, and more. Yes, there is a way in which our own use of social media can obscure our ideas. This goes for me too. There are controversies and disagreements in the public sphere, not all of which Stephen and I addressed. There may have been questions you wanted me to ask that I simply didn't, details you wish we had dived deeper into, or a sense of journalistic neutrality you want me to show that I don't actually feel, because I have a perspective and I like this big idea, and I want to share it. If you know this podcast, then you know that I don't shy away from long conversations, sometimes up to five hours. What that means is that I believe in the power of your attention spans. And while Dr. Wolf and I didn't talk for that long, I would like to encourage everyone listening to invest in yourself and read his book. Flex those mental muscles. Focus. Whether you agree or not, that's fine. But try to see if you can turn his ideas over in your mind and see what you see. Then take Dr. Wolf's case for Christian nationalism and bash it into some other ideas, like what you've been told it's all about, and find out what happens. In our conversation, Dr. Wolf and I discussed the genesis of his book, Reclaiming Nationalism, the fear of fascism, our social imagination, the rejection of natural law, permissibility and prudence, and finally, running counter to gynocracy. If you enjoy the Renaissance of Men podcast, thank you. 
We're getting warmed up in 2024, and this episode is a great example of what I have in store for you this year. You can help the podcast grow by leaving a five-star rating and review on Apple Podcasts and a five-star rating on Spotify. Plus, share this episode or another one of your favorites with a friend. And if this is your first time listening, welcome. Please subscribe to the show on your favorite podcast platform. I release new interview episodes discussing topics related to virtuous Christian masculinity every Friday. This episode is proudly presented free of interruption by two sponsors, Reformation Coffee and O'Brien Fitness Lifestyle. Reformation Coffee wants to be the coffee of Christendom. Reformation was founded by Pastor Brandon Lansdowne in Springfield, Missouri. He took his passion for roasting coffee and made it his profession. This is craftsmanship and dedication, because Brandon roasts every bag of coffee by hand. Not only that, he roasts within three days of your order and ships immediately after. You order, he roasts, then his family packs and ships, and your morning coffee experience is transformed. Christian nationalism isn't just a concept. It's a complete vision of how a nation can orient itself to the good. It involves countless small decisions that we all make every day, and one of those is where we get our coffee and who we get it from. So I encourage you to visit ReformationCoffee.com right now and order coffee today. Plus, you can subscribe to Reformation for regular coffee delivery. And when you sign up using the code SUBFREE, you'll get one free bag of coffee on the house. Again, subscribe to regular coffee delivery from Reformation and use the code SUBFREE to get one free 12-ounce bag of coffee. You don't support globalism in the public square? Why are you supporting it in your coffee? Go with Reformation instead, and let's make them the coffee of Christendom. Our second sponsor bringing you this episode interruption-free is O'Brien Fitness Lifestyle. Let me read you a passage from Dr. Wolf's book on page 469. Quote, Christian nationalism should have a strong and austere aesthetic. I was dismayed when I saw the attendees of the recent PCA General Assembly, men in wrinkled, short-sleeved golf shirts sitting plump in their seats. We have to do better. Pursue your potential. Lift weights, eat right, and lose the dad bod. We don't all have to become bodybuilders, but we ought to be men of power and endurance. We cannot achieve our goals with such a flabby aesthetic and under the control of modern nutrition. Sneering at this aesthetic vision, which I fully expect to happen, is pure cope. Grace does not destroy T-levels. Grace does not perfect testosterone into estrogen. If our opponents want to be fat, have low testosterone, and chug vegetable oil, let them. It won't be us. Now that is a call to action. Does it inspire and convict you? It did me. There's just one problem. The nutrition and fitness industry is overrun with secularism. Men vainly flexing in the mirror, flaunting their physiques, and sexualizing women, too. But what if there was a man out there who shared your Christian values, who wants to help you become a man of power and endurance, liberate you from modern nutrition, pursue your potential, rebuild your T-levels, and help you define your own strong and austere aesthetic? Thankfully, there is, and his name is Sean O'Brien. He's the founder of O'Brien Fitness Lifestyle, personal training for kingdom builders. Sean guides fellow brothers and sisters towards achieving their health and fitness goals, all for God's glory, offering personal training with a Christian focus. He does online coaching with custom programs designed to meet you where you're at, setting you up with regular accountability to achieve your fitness goals. He's also a consultant for fathers, business owners, and pastors looking to build up personal training spaces for their family, business, or church. He can design, plan, and execute a gym build customized to your needs and resources, There is a deep need in Christendom for godly men to train up other godly men and women in physical strength and fitness, which is why I'm thrilled to be able to introduce you to Sean today. 
Visit O'BrienFitnessLifestyle.com to find out more and book a consultation with him to find out how he can help you, man or woman, young or old, achieve your fitness goals. Because Christian nationalism isn't just about what we think or what we believe. It's about what we do, what we eat, and how we represent ourselves physically as believers to the world. So visit O'BrienFitnessLifestyle.com, and that's O'Brien with an E, or hit the link in the description to book a consultation today. Again, visit O'Brien Fitness Lifestyle and get started building your piece of the kingdom. Thanks to both our sponsors, Reformation Coffee and O'Brien Fitness Lifestyle, for bringing you this two-hour conversation commercial-free. And please welcome this week's guest on the podcast, the author of The Case for Christian Nationalism, Dr. Stephen Wolf. Stephen, thanks so much for joining me on the podcast today. Yeah, great to be on. So uh, I really enjoyed your book that people who are just listening can't see, but you know, I've got it pretty marked up and highlighted and thoroughly read and and noted. And um, I read this last year and I found it deeply engrossing. And uh, it was really informative to me in terms of the way that Christian nationalism can look. And I found that a lot of people don't seem to understand how it can look. So I want to, I'm grateful for the chance to have you on to talk about the book and, and some of the ideas that you, that you lay out. Yeah. Yeah. I'd love to. Yeah. It's great. Thanks. So I, I guess the first question for me though, is, is uh, just before we get into it, what was kind of the genesis and inspiration of the book and how did you go about compiling the research and the sources? It's so yeah. heavily noted the entire way through, like what was, what was that process like and when did you begin with so it? So I was in the middle of writing my dissertation. I was at LSU at the time. Mm-hmm. I was probably about halfway through the dissertation maybe. And I, I recall that I, I, I wrote a lot of it in the evening. For some reason I had a, I guess a second or third wind late in the evening um, in Louisiana. And I would, it was obviously it's hot all the time, even one in the morning and you're sweating out there. Um, but I'd be out there and I'd be like smoking my pipe and, and writing my dissertation. And I think I opened up Twitter and saw a bunch of chatter about Christian nationalism. I, I just randomly thought, hmm, this would be interesting. What a, a do is one of those things where I, I'd before, in, I, uh, like when I encountered the term, it was my, my instinct as, as sort of, um, recovering conservative, which I think by then I'd mainly mm. recovered, uh, was, um, was to reject it and say, no, I, I don't want, I'm not that. Of course I'm not that. It's like, it's like whenever the right or, or conservatives are called fascist or racist or this or that, they're like, oh, I'm not this or that. It's like our instinct to reject mm-hmm. things. And, you know, suppressing that psychological habit that's ingrained us in, in us as good conservatives, I said, wait a second, I do actually like that term. And I think that can capture what my thinking is. And I tweeted that I tweeted, "Hey, would anyone want to see a book on Christian nationalism?" And a bunch of positive responses. And literally, like ten, sure, t- maybe ten, twenty minutes later, I get a text. I get a, a message from Canon saying, "Hey, send in a proposal." And that's the genesis. Oh, wow. So I mean, uh, so since then, that was twenty. Uh, that had to be twenty twenty. Uh, I think it was during pandemic. Okay. So yeah, it was twenty twenty. Mm-hmm. And so that that's actually the genesis. It was actually very random. But uh, but the thing is, I, I was writing my dissertation on Puritan New England and the American founding, and I was trying to uh, apply a lot of Protestant theology to it, because I think a lot of people who study the American founding are either Jewish or they're Roman Catholic, um, or they're like Protestants mm. influenced by like neo-Calvinism and other notions of 20th century Reformed theology. So, But I, I had somewhat of background in 17th century Reformed theology and political thought, 
And um, so I said, wait, a lot of what one of these guys are saying is just not true. Um, and so I was trying to bring that understanding of Protestant theology to the questions of the American founding and appear to New England and how that and all that and the dissertations out there now. But um, so I had all that background research, reading reformers, the reform Orthodox theologians. I'd published things on people like Benedict Pictet and on these other kind of like reformed writers uh, that people don't really know um, anymore, but were kind of popular back then. So I kind of had that base of knowledge. And so I used a lot of that stuff that did not, that was either footnoted or not in the dissertation, I used it for this project. So most of the footnoting and the, the references and the quotes is taken from that, the process of researching for the dissertation. And the, the actual formulations of everything, that was just a development going back from to 2010, 20 to 2012. Uh, the genesis of it all was like listening re and reading people from like the Calvinist International, which no longer exists. Um, but that kind of grew into the Davenant Institute. Back then it was a Davenant Trust and now it's a Davenant Institute. So those guys had a heavy early influence on me. At the same time, I was also paleo, uh, a paleoconservative so um, anyway, you can see all that kind of reflected that's uh, in, in the book from dissertation writing to being influenced by kind of recovery of, of older classical Protestantism and also kind of some paleoconservative leanings uh, in the kind of political context. Mm -hmm. So that's all reflected in the book. So as you were, so as, as you were kind of coming around to exiting conservatism, did you also encounter some, like how did this shape your ideas around nationalism? Because one of the, one of the early parts of the book is, you know, an, an assertion of the goodness of nationalism. And I, and I recognize now I've been to more than 30 countries around the world. And so it, it seems to me that there are other countries around the world that are very allowed to be proud of their nation. And yet in America, it's forbidden. So I have some strong questions about that. And so reading your reading, your assertion of the goodness of nationalism was actually a breath of fresh air for me. Mm -hmm. So how did that, where did that come about? Yeah. Uh, I mean, nationalism is one of those terms that um, in American context, people kind of like it, but don't like it. A lot of conservatives don't like it. A lot of paleoconservatives don't like the mm -hmm. term. They think it re refers more back to the, the French Revolution. And then kind of the boomer con mm -hmm. mentality is that it's fascist or, or Nazi or something like that. Right. And so they, they don't right. like the term. Um, but as I, as I thought more about, okay, I mean, do I appropriate this, this term? I knew people would misunderstand what I'm or kind of misconstrue my use. But I did think, well, you know what? Can conservatism itself just seems dead to me, um, is dead and dead to me. Uh, so, but what, what I thought, what I think we need as a country is to kind of re reinvigorate a sense of, of we, of the, uh, the sense yeah. of self, that a collective entity of what's called the nation, and that we're not just an economic zone. We're not just this kind of sort of universal space where any, anything goes, anyone, anywhere, you know, anyone can be, can be here and, and uh, uh, being American is just assenting to a set of propositions. Like I, I'll, uh, so that, that just doesn't, that doesn't uh, comport with human nature and reality. And so we needed, we needed a term, I think, like, like nationalism to say, no, we, we have to restore the sense of nationhood, restore the sense of people in place. We have to be, be grounded in a kind of a generational connection uh, and, and kind of get away from a lot of these propositions. So I thought nationalism, it, when defined as, I mean, you just think of the etymology. I mean, it's nation, so it's nationalism. So mm -hmm. I break it down in the introduction. I say there's a nation, 
and the nation is composed of, you know, we can talk about that, but there's a nation, then what's the ism? Mm -hmm. Like, what's the ism of nationalism? Well, it's kind of the, 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 the way that the, these people, as a people, kind of act for their good in this world. So it's, uh, it could be the, the different political arrangements, social arrangements, customs, laws, and that's, so you have, firstly, fundamentally a people, and then you, the ism is that sort of program or, you know, actions, as I, as I say in the book, a sort of set of actions that they, that they do to secure their good. So that, that's why I thought it was just the right, the right move to make would be to introduce something that I knew would be controversial, but did capture, it's a term that captures the ideas underneath it. Um, and I wasn't like some people, I mean, we're getting the term itself. I mean, some people have like accused me of just, oh, you just market it. It's like a good marketing device. Um, and, uh, that it actually is a good marketing device. That is true. Well. <laughs> it is true in the sense that the, the, the left wants to continue. They, they want to keep throwing the term out and accusing people of it. And oh, it just happens to be that this one guy wrote a book on it. Okay, good. Um, so it is mm -hmm. true that it's a good marketing device, but that wasn't the motivation for writing it. Cause I mean, if you read the book, it is, an, it is a account of a Christian nationalism. So, um, mm -hmm. it's, so I guess the, the, the marketability of, of the, of the terminology is just kind of a bonus, um, that, that keeps it going, I guess. <laughs> but, uh, yeah. Yeah. Well, I mean, I just want to thank you for saying that because I've got page nine, open here and it seems to me that like if people want to understand the case that you're making that they can afford the time to read i don't know it's it's the first page of print is what page one something like that they can read on page nine christian christian nationalism this is your definition is a totality of national ac action consisting of civil laws and social customs conducted by a christian nation as a christian nation in order to procure for itself both earthly and heavenly good in christ yeah, and I and I read that. It was like that makes sense to me. Yeah, the most confusing part is is the totality part, and I went back and forth on whether or not to call it that. But I thought it was it would be appropriate because um, after explaining it, it's it's this idea that there's some things that are mun mundane, some things that are extraordinary that we do in in regular life, some regular everyday life. We mm -hmm. we get up and we feed our kids, and we you know either homeschool them or we send them off to school. We do these very mundane things. But all those different actions that in our life, from those mundane to extraordinary, are part of this kind of totality that leads to um, to our good. So you can just think of like a household. The totality of action of a household leads to the good of the household. So that would be you getting up and feeding your kids, or it could be an extraordinary event of you standing and fighting an intruder or something like that. But all those things together in their totality uh, are necessary to bring to that good for the, the family as a, as a whole, as a collective unit. So for the nation, it's everything from your, um, from, yeah, uh, your, your, your economic, your economic activity out, out in just regular life, doing work in a, having a job and a vocation. It could be extraordinary things like sacrificing, um, life and limb for the good of your nation. Uh, it could be all sorts of things. And th that's what I mean by the totality of it. Um, because even, it's even like, uh, I mean, to worship God, let's just take the, the, that sacred event of worshiping God on Sunday, okay? What do you do to prepare for that? Well, you could do all sorts of spiritual things to prepare for that, read the Bible, pray that. But you also get up in the morning and you eat breakfast. You 
drink some water, you get a good night's rest the night before. And so there's th- these things that are earthly that are that kind of make it so that you can worship God well on Sunday that you do. And that's part of kind of that totality, like the earthly things that, that support the heavenly. So to make a Christian national, to make a Christian nation then is not just a pure heavenly sort of nation. It's a people that do earthly things. Like you have regular vocations like plumber and nutrition and eat food and they exchange goods and services. And um, so anyway, that that's what I have in mind there with totality. Uh, and the Christian aspect is, well, anyway, well, I, I keep going on and on, but we could just leave it there. No, no. Uh, I mean, so the, the no. Christian aspect is, um, it, it, it's a it's a it's a nation that has a unique way of life. But the Christian aspect is that the the Christian, the Christian way of life is fused with that, so that your customs, traditions are Christian. Um, you identify your, your as a people as Christian, just like in a family, you'd identify your, yourself as a Christian family. You have you have Christian habits, Christian ways of going about things. So like if you were just a purely natural family, you might forgive each other, but a Christian family will forgive each other in Christ and there'll be the, the use of that sort of like restoration. Um, uh, but, it, and, and, but the, the principal Christian aspect of a Christian nation is going to be the worship of God. So it's going to be the Sunday mm-hmm. worship of God um, or, you know, other times as well, other days, but that's the, that's the principal Christian aspect, and that's actually everything that, well, the salvation of souls is the um, ultimate kind of object of a Christian nation. It's not, um, it's not, as I say, it's not immanentizing the eschaton, it's not bringing heaven down to earth in the sense of, um, you know, eradicating nature by grace or anything like that. It's not, um, it's not bringing, it's not, uh, um, what, what's the word? Instantiating the kingdom of God as an earthly thing. Mm-hmm. It's, it's so. The, I, I do maintain the the distinctions between earthly and heavenly, sacred, secular, grace and nature. Um, but what this means is that the things that are earthly uh, and the, the things of this life are then ultimately ordered to that the highest. So all all those subordinate goods are, are kind of ordered to the highest good. In the same sense that you. You wake up in the morning, um, you get a good night's rest before worship, you have some food, put food in your belly, that kind of thing. You, you, may, you, may, dress, you may dress better for church than you normally would because you think that all of those are supports, like earthly material supports for something that's higher and spiritual. So the same thing with the nation in, in relation to Christian things. And that's, that's the thing that I found so striking about what you had proposed. Is it seems to me that the term Christian nationalism in the, dia- in the dialogue, in the public dialogue, let's say Rob Reiner as an example, it, it harkens to that quote, when, when fascism comes to America, it'll be like, it'll be a, a, a cross wrapped in a flag or something like that. I don't know if you've heard that, that quote before. And that seems to be what people are viscerally responding to, that idea. I don't know where that idea, idea comes from, but that seems to be the response. But then reading the definition as you provide it, as the totality of national action, orienting towards the good and the salvation of souls. Like mm. what a, what a beautiful vision. And, it, and it's to, to look at that and be like, Hey guys, have you, have you read this? <laughs> and to have them reacting to the term. I don't know. It's, yeah. uh, it's tough sometimes to see. Yeah. Well, I mean the, 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 the intent behind the term was to uh, capture 
it was it was an attempt by sociologists to put a label under the people they don't like. I mean, that's what it comes down to. They, they yeah. wouldn't say that, I don't yeah. think, but that like all their behavior, all their commentary, their books, what they say, that's what this is about. And that's why, I mean, really in terms of actually, it, it's horrible scholarship. You, you read the work on Christian nationalism, and it's completely ad hoc. Oh, here, here are the six things we're going to identify as Christian nationalists. And hey, it just happens <laughs> to be the case that the people we don't like all, funder, all fun, um, fall under that. Right that criteria. So it's just, it's, it's bad scholarship, but it's, you know, nowadays everything's so politically motivated that if they're on the side of the regime and so they're going to be praised and put on the talk shows and all that. So, I mean, you got like Samuel Perry's and Gorski and Andrew Whitehead, it's all horrible scholarship, but, um, but mm-hmm. they, they, they get, they get all the, the, the little gold stars from the elite. Um, but, but yeah, I mean, that's what it comes down to. Uh, like, like that's what, in, like in itself, it's not a bad thing to try to say, hey, there's some phenomenon happened in the world sociologically. Like there's some sociological political thing happened in the world. Let's analyze this and try to capture it and we'll give it a label and then we can talk about it. Like that's just what academics mm-hmm. do. There's nothing wrong with it. But yeah, the obvious, the, the the reason for this was to find a label and let's call it nationalism. What's that? Na- like, you know, mm-hmm. this is one of the funny things is that if you look at the like honest literature on nationalism they are they struggle themselves just on nationalism as a like a broad concept to define what that is i mean the same thing with fascism but like no but now you're using that term that is highly disputed within it within its own kind of scholarly genre and now you're applying it in this context and why is that well because in the imagination of like the post-war post-world war ii era the imagination of nationalism is hitler and mustache man and it's it's that's what it is. Yes. Um, so mm-hmm. um, you use then that that term to bash the people you don't like. You call them Christian nationalists. So and they also mm-hmm. know. I mean, it's it's a good it's a good strategy because the um, the the conservatives like tip, your typical mainstream conservative pundit doesn't like the term nationalism either. And so what what do they do? Well, they start. Oh, I'm not a Christian nationalist either. So it's, they get on the defensive. They join the regime like they always do to attack the people who are actually opposing it, um, and so that's that's exactly what's happening again. Uh, oh, oh, I'm, I'm not a Christian nationalist. I'm a Christian patriot. I'm like, okay, whatever. You're just playing semantics here, but <laughs> uh, right. Anyway, right. it's all like rhetorical posturing. It's all appealing to a certain base. That's uh, their imagination's been warped by fears of of uh fascism and all that like i mean if, if you're if you're over 50 if you're 60 or over politically speaking the worst thing you could be would to be a fascist it would be worse than if you were a communist mm-hmm. or a socialist the worst thing you could be is a fascist um and so that's mm-hmm. that greatest fear it's why like people like bill buckley and the national like national review crowd have always been very willing to dialogue with the left but then, when it comes to the right, they just cancel, purge, and, and destroy and ruin. Um, it's always it's always been like that. So it's just engineered into the conservative psyche to have that kind of uh, police the right to the point of being of ruining them, um, while you kind of thoughtfully engage the left, give them a seat at the table, and all that. So, mm, I can I can see that. Um, I can and I can see that the way that the term nationalist or Christian nationalism throws it's it's thrown out in a way that creates smoke that activates anger and conflict where the actual dialogue of a a phenomenon to be examined critically 
positively or negatively, like it's okay, like to put forth an affirmative vision like you've done here. Mm-hmm. You put yourself open for criticism. I'm going to put forth an affirmative vision of something that I believe can work and criticize the affirmative vision as opposed to like just argue about terminology. It's, it's incredibly frustrating. Yeah. I can imagine how you must feel. Yeah, I, I've said it like probably dozens of times at this point, but I, I don't care if people don't adopt the term. I mean, if, if somehow that's a hang up for you, Right. I mean, I, I have I have friends. Um, I think one C.J. Engel uh, is one friend of mine, and he it's not that he doesn't like the term; he just doesn't want to claim it. But he he says he agrees with sure. almost everything I, I said in the book, um, and, and that's perfectly fine with me. Exactly. I, I really don't care. Uh, I, I've always said that if if in ten years no one uses the term anymore, but they but they agree with the idea and not only the idea, the spirit of it, like it's not just about ideas, it's about sort of a spirit behind it. Um, if they if they affirm all that, then I that's then that's fine. Like that means I yeah I was successful. Um, so great. Yeah. Well let's let's skip the Christian nationalism term and then get into the actual the meat of it. Yeah. Because this was the part that I found so engaging. And I'll read the definition again. Christian nationalism is a totality of national action consisting of civil laws and social customs conducted by a Christian nation as a Christian nation in order to procure for itself both earthly and heavenly good in Christ. Mm -hmm. And so I want to start taking that apart. So leave perhaps the label behind, and let's just start taking apart the pieces, because what you actually lay out in the book after this is a, it appeared to me, like a very tightly put together mechanism that produces, at the end, earthly and heavenly good in Christ. That Christ is actually the goal, the salvation of souls is the goal, and we can conceive of the instrument as a nation for something to achieve that goal. Mm-hmm. So, and, and what you laid out socially, governmentally, legally, politically, even economically, I believe, um, all oriented people towards that end. So let's, I want to take apart yeah. sort of mechanically how that works in the vision of, that you put forth. Yeah, uh, I mean, um, yeah, the, the totality of national action and then the end, that, that's, I cover that in the theological side. Uh, and, but the, the, the rest of the book is kind of, um, ex, uh, kind of, um, uh, expanding upon the other parts of the definition. So the law and custom, and also the idea that they conducted as a nation or by a nation as a Christian nation, what, what all that, those means that, that's why, so I have a chapter on civil law, I have a chapter on, uh, cultural Christianity or social custom, and those cover those aspects of the definition. And, uh, but yeah, I mean, what what I try to describe in the theological section is it's like I said earlier it's not about um, yeah it's it's about maintaining the the proper distinctions that are kind of handed to us from classical theology and the Reformed tradition um, and, and not not thinking that 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 we're here to kind of imminentize the eschaton as Eric Vogelin mm-hmm. said but that we're to order this world to the next. Uh, without losing, without becoming, you know, the, the, using the Gnostic word, but without becoming Gnostics, that we deny the the the, the natural, like the or the earthly. Mm-hmm. Um, in fact, the, then I so I talk about the idea of a complete good. The complete good for for a human being would be not only that they they know Christ and they have it, uh, they're entitled to, they have a title to eternal life, but they're also the earthly life is um, is complete as well. So there's heavenly and earthly aspects. Mm-hmm. So. You are you are just as a basic thing. You're, you're fed well. You have shelter. Those kind of things. Uh, you have a good vocation. Um, th- that kind of stuff. All those things are part of your complete good. It's not. 
Uh, so I, I kind of reject the idea that you could be in an utter state of earthly misery and yet saved. Um, and that that can constitute kind of a sort of perfection in this life. So I think it can, I guess mm. this is more of a Aristotelian aspect that the, the complete man is someone where all, all the possible set of goods you, you have. Um, so you have a good earthly and, and you have the title to eternal life. Um, uh, I don't know why I was going that way, but yeah. So, I mean, uh, I don't know where you want to go on that, but yeah, that's, so that's the definition. I mean, which, which aspect do you want to tease out or me go to next? Well, I want to start with, I think we covered the notion of the totality of national action. Like we addressed that. So consisting of civil laws and social customs, because in in that you got about, you, you, you spent the part that I remember best was talking about sort of cultural Christianity, orienting things, within the American cultural, mm-hmm. we'll say, milieu towards Christianity and away from other things. And that, of course, is a controversial topic. I don't think it should be, but nonetheless it is. Maybe we can talk about the civil laws and social customs Yeah, as well. so, yeah, the, the chapter Cultural Christ- Christianity, what's funny is that that chapter, even among my critics, generally have give, given, like, well, a, a lot of praise to that one, which is okay. not entirely surprising, but it is, I guess, slightly ironic. I, I think, but I, I think the reason is, is that they don't, it, it's the, 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 they, they somehow, people tend to think that, um, that culture and the, and the kind of the power associated, that it, it doesn't have any sort of power or force to it, that it's just something that happens right. and we just all conform to it. But actually, I mean, there's a tremendous amount of like power that goes into shaping a social imagination to think this is right and this is wrong. And to feel like you shouldn't do it. So, like for most of us, I'm, I'm I'm assuming watching this, the idea that you would be in your car and have a soda bottle, and you would say, "Oh, I'm done with it. What do I do with it?" And you open the window and you toss it out. Like to me, that that yeah. would be horrifying. And if I like if I did it, I'd 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 lose sleep just because I'm just so ingrained that you don't litter. Um, there's other reasons too. I hate seeing litter on the ground uh, in my neighborhood and other things, but. Um, you know, the guy in front of me, if I saw him just throw out his McDonald's bag from his truck or whatever, I'd be pretty mad at the guy. And it was very natural. It's not as if I had just like reason to that. I mean, I could reason to it, but it's just like this natural reaction, like of second nature, like you don't do that. That, that was ingrained in me. I remember like kindergarten, I was, you know, five years old. They're talking about how it's bad to litter. So it's that kind of thing Mm -hmm. where there, there's authority that's enacting rules that's socializing you into thinking and reacting and doing, having certain habits. So there's a lot of power in that, but I, I just think like the, it would be the, the main idea behind cultural Christianity is that it can't save you. I, I just for frankly admit that of course it cannot save you. Um, mm-hmm. That it's that even if you're a cultural Christian, you're not a Christian in the sense of eternal salvation or, you know, uh, in a state of grace or whatever you're, you, you could say hypocrite. Um, and so that, that for so cultural Christianity then at the same time is a kind of nudge to, to, to faith. It's a, it's akin to like um, you raise your children in the faith. I mean, this probably makes more sense to Baptist, but also many Presbyterians that you raise your kids in the faith that they would be, that they would just kind of ease into ease into faith. Like there wait, wait, are, I would prefer that my kids would not have some like uh, catastrophic event that leads them to Christ or somehow there's just radical like 
you know, it's as if they, they were into drugs and now they're, they're freed from that. Like, I wouldn't want any of that. Um, I want them to have the knowledge and then kind of, um, have the, the, the moral purity and then kind of lead into, uh, lead into faith. The same thing for a nation is that that nation can then instill within you that, um, that encouragement, that, that kind of preparation for you to become, for you to have true faith. Um, and I, so that's, in that sense, it prepares you for faith. It's preparative. And the, and the idea of, uh, of preparing for, for, for faith is just a really old concept. It goes, um, mm-hmm. it goes, you know, back to the, the early church fathers. And so I think that having a, like growing up in a Christian culture is, one means to uh, in, to lead people to Christ. Also, it would just be a better community. It would just be, you'd. I mean, imagine like n- nowadays, just how horrible it is that I, I, you, you turn an old cartoon on for your kids, and you have to kind of be vigilant because it's going to turn to a cartoon or a, a commercial, and it's going to be two two men making out or something, you know, or whatever it's going to be. All sorts of things like what what is going on here? Rainbow flags and. Um, wouldn't it be nice if if we if we had standards of conduct in our country that were uh, that you, you didn't you don't even need a law really it would just be expected that you know of course you're not going to do this or put that there or of course you're not going to have blasphemous material or that you know, that sort of stuff uh, yeah so it would be better for yeah it'd be better for everyone I mean imagine you don't have to worry about I mean like growing up where I grew up. In, in the eighties, um, it was, I mean, it was California. So it was kind of secular in a way, but everyone was kind of generally still like you could trust the other parents to know, mm-hmm. to do, to be a certain way. You kind of, you know, them a little bit, you kind of trust generally everyone. Um, but nowadays you just can't do that at all. You can't trust anyone at all. So anyway, that's the idea of anti-cultural Christianity. It can't save you. But it can kind of n- nudge you, and, and I mean, also it, it makes it so that you don't have to, you don't actually have to demonstrate Christianity. You just have to call them to faith. So if you're raised in an environment in which Christianity is widely accepted and received, um, and you're kind of socialized into that way of thinking, you don't really need to be convinced of these things. Because you, you I mean, as, as we know, if someone can assent to truth and not be saved. They have to actually trust. And they have to kind of have faith um, in, in the things in, in that truth. Um, but uh, so, really, then evangelism in a Christian society is not so much you doing apologetics; it's you calling people to not be hypocrites. <laughs> it's calling them mm-hmm, to mm-hmm. have faith in the things that they claim to affirm. So, mm-hmm. yeah, genuine faith. Yeah. Like that was, that was the thing that you refuted people's concerns about hypocrisy. And I guess the question that I have is, is it somehow worse to have open paganism of the sort that we see every single day? Is that, is that, is that better, I guess, than people performing the duties of Christianity without actually being Christians? Like, is that hypocrisy somehow worse than what we see on Twitter every day? Right. Or if you can have, again, the, the power, I think, of the definition is you have the totality of national action. So it's not merely cultural Christianity that is encouraging people in a, in a particular direction. The entire nation is oriented towards that. You almost can't escape the, um, the encouragement of people towards salvation in Christ in, in church. So it's not merely that they're performing their duties, as you say. They're being encouraged forward to, to truly believe what they're living is, is, that's what I understand you saying. Yeah, that, I mean that's the essential aspect. O- otherwise, you become kind of like a, 
I mean, I don't want to pick on Hungary, but it's just because I, I've talked to people. But <laughs> but uh, uh, Hungarians are interesting because um, for many of them, uh, it's the only time they go to church is when there's a baptism of a kid, and mm. um, it's, uh, it's 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 such a cultural expectation that you baptize your children. Like, oh, you didn't baptize them? Like, you know, no one's going to church. It's very low at church attendance. Um, but uh, so, so in that case, like that's one of those where, no, what needs to be instilled in the nation is why, what the Christianity means. It's not a, just simply a basis of morality or it's not simply a basis of civil unity, um, which it, it does serve all those functions, but that's not its principle. Right. You know, uh, like to be a Christian nation, its principal function is not those. Those are like secondary or whatever, but the, the principle is is salvation. So what, like a place like Hungary, uh, what they need is to instill the sense in which, no, attending worship is your duty as a Christian um, and the nation should be oriented to higher, something higher than just their, their kind of ethnic uh, Christian unity. Mm-hmm. I just finished reading Christianity and Liberalism by J. Gresham, Gresham Machen, and he describes at the end that Christianity is not a means, essentially, not so many words, that Christianity is not a means to an end. I think mm-hmm. he says that, you know, Christianity may be employed to defeat Bolshevism, but if it's only being used to de- defeat communism, then it's not Christianity. Yeah. Like Christianity is not a means to an end. It is the end. And, and that, I think, that distinction often often gets lost. Like, yes, we can use it to solve all these social problems, but that's not its purpose. The, the solution of social problems flows is downstream from that. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, that, that is, that is like the, the fear is um, like the critique is, Oh, you'll just become another kind of hypocritical quasi kind of Christian and name only type place. And that, that's a legitimate fear. I'm not going to mm-hmm. deny that. Um, mm-hmm. And, and that's why every, every, every family, you know, if a family uh, is a Christian family, but they find find out that they have never or very rarely do family worship. Well, it's, you should stop it and get back. Uh, you should be called, mm-hmm. call yourself and call your friends and call and ministers should call you to um, to as a father kind of uh, restore that in your family life. Same thing with with the nation, um, and same thing with anything. I mean, it, really, this is the thing: is like, well, everything degenerates. Well. Okay, I mean that's not entirely true, but even if that's the mm-hmm. case, um, you still you still fight for to to maintain to, to maintain and improve things as as best you can. I mean, do we just say that right. there's entropy, and so therefore you just are going to give up and like your house is eventually yeah. going to crumble? So why try to repair it as you go? Right, <laughs> um, right. So maybe we can tackle the civil laws okay. bit because I know that uh, you know we're we're in the age of Dusty Devers and the Oklahoma State Legislature promoting the ideas of Christian, the Christian civil laws. It's very exciting. So let's address that bit before moving on to the next piece of the definition. Yeah, I mean, so civil law is basically, I mean, a, a civil law is um, the people in a way telling themselves to, to do this or don't do that. Um, but they do, they, uh, that's kind of, I mean, in a kind of very broad way, that's kind of what's happening. But the people install, through their sovereignty, popular sovereignty, install uh, uh, magistrates to do that, or legislatures. They have a, a certain political arrangement, they and they'll establish that. We, the people, of the United States, you know. So we'll, we'll, they, the people, establish certain kind of architectonic arrangements, 
and um, and then they elect their they elect or somehow uh, give consent to rulers who then enact law, and that law it will regulate the people. So in, in a way, it's kind of the people giving themselves their own law, um, and that's to regulate their their behavior. Sometimes it's to, to restrain sin, and sometimes that law is to kind of do collective action. So um, like uh, you driving on the right side of the road is not restraining sin so much. It's just coordinating a collective action. Someone else is going the opposite direction as you. You need to coordinate that action so you don't crash into one another. So so a lot of traffic laws are actually just facilitating movement um, in ways that are not like people, like you could, I mean, you could be, uh, per, you could be perfect. Like everyone can be sinless and have good intentions. If you don't have some way to coordinate that that collective action of driving on the roads, uh, you're just going to frustrate each other and not get what you want. So there's rules associated with that mm-hmm. to facilitate collective action and everyone's good. And then of course, like I said, there's the laws that restrain uh, restrain sin, so murder, theft, uh, those sorts of things. Um, and yeah, so that that's kind of the basics of civil. Well, there's more to it. So. Um, any another thing to think about is um, a law is just only if you could if it's derived from the natural law. All right, so the natural law is that law that we're that we're under the set of principles, and the end of the, that that law, the the rule, the standard of that is our good. So if we if we meet the if we conform as individuals perfectly conform to the natural law, then in that sense, that's a standard of righteousness. We are perfect. Um, so civil laws, they uh, civil laws have to derive from the natural law uh, as a sort of foundational. So uh, th- that doesn't mean you cannot appeal to scripture because scripture, scriptural ethics, uh, apart from aspects of worship, but um, but civil uh, Christian eth- ethics as it deals with our earthly life is is like a republication or kind of a restatement of natural law. So like the Ten Commandments mm-hmm. is essentially like a summary of of the natural law. Um, and so, by appealing to scripture for some civil law, you are you're not appealing over and against the natural law or something alongside it or separate from it, but actually, in a way, you are actually appealing to the natural law itself, just through different means. One, one's one mm-hmm. like natural law would be properly understood through faith or reason, and then you, but you can kind of understand see natural law via faith in scripture, what God says. So. Um, what this, yeah, and and the, uh, a law is binding upon you only if it's it's ju- only if it's just, and it's a just law only if it's uh, can conform to God's law. God's law again, the natural law or mm-hmm. more the moral law, uh, which means that if um, a, a law is unjust, then it's actually not a law at all because you can only be bound mm-hmm. to do. Um, a civil magistrate can only order you to do um, what's consistent with God's law. And if yeah. it's contrary to that law, it's actually not a law at all. And, and the, the one ordering you to do it is no longer in, in that regard an actual magistrate or a, a minister, or deacon of God. So he's just a man ordering mm-hmm. you to do something. <laughs> he's a madman saying, right. go sin. Uh, and so you can reject it without rejecting God's minister. So, but if uh, he does say you should not do this, and this thing is actually just, it's a just law. And if you violate that law, you're not only violating the civil magistrate; you're also viol- you're also um, disobeying God. 
because these civil magistrates are are sort of like like um, like mediator of civil rule. They, they actually have legislating, lawmaking authority. They're not like like a, so. A church minister doesn't have sort of magisterial authority. They minister the things of God that are given to them. So like through through their word, they administer word and sacrament. They don't come up with their own ceremonies. They don't come up with um, yeah. So they're just ministering the things of God uh, with the without this kind of they can't yeah they can't legislate for their people these these new spiritual ceremonies whereas a, a, a christian magistrate can enact actual real law they can say given this set of circumstances and given the principles of god's law i enact this law about i don't know you need you need a fishing license otherwise you need a fishing license to fish otherwise these guys are just going to be unhindered in throwing nets and to grab you know and deplete all the fisheries so um, th- things like that. The, the, they, they see a problem, they see it conforms to God's law, they enact that law, and they have that actual authority to create real law, though it has to be derivative. So, I mean, any, any issue, question? I kind of, uh, that was like a shotgun blast of civil law. Yeah. Uh, I, <laughs> and I just kept going on and on. But any kind of, need clarification on anything there? Or do I need no, to talk about I, theonomy I, I, now? I got it all. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Well, I mean, at the at the risk of um, at the risk of driving a nice conversation like off, off a cliff, I, one of the one of the critiques that I consistently hear, I thought, and, and you mentioned the magistrates, I thought because this is the part that I that I had to work the hardest with when I read it, I thought people would react the most to the idea of the Christian prince, and I don't see people really getting too worked up about that. Oh no, but the you're, thing, the you're thing you're that, wrong. No, that 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 was. I'm not that, I, okay. I haven't. Oh no, yeah, absolutely. Okay. People okay. got worked up about that. Yeah. Okay. Okay, because what I've seen, maybe this is a, a bit downstream, is people getting getting worked up over the um, the presuppositionalism versus the versus the Thomism natural law oh, yeah. distinction. That's the bit. Yeah. That's the bit that I've seen, and I don't have the capacity to to, to legislate that to to litigate that. Um, hey, I could uh, I could address I, and, that, but yeah, for sure. Um, yeah, I, I think um, I don't actually know if it's in the book or not, or if it was an earlier edition. But I did at one point in the book say something that I'm I'm kind of like a reformed Thomist, and someone asked me mm-hmm. once, "Do like, there's anything I would have changed?" And that's actually one thing I would take out. So if I if I'm ever allowed to do a re- revised edition, I take that out, and I, I would take that out to, not to hide anything, but just because I know what I was getting at when I said that. But I think it creates more confusion. Um, because mm. I'm as Thomist as the Reformed Orthodox uh, theologians of, uh, let's say, at least mm. the 17th century. I'm as Thomist as Francis Turretin. Um, so if that makes me Thomist, then I am. But um, it also means he's Thomist. Uh, so, I, yeah, I, I do think... And, but at the same time, the idea of natural law itself as the standard of righteousness... As being something that, if uh, is for you, it's it's um, synonymous with your good. I Meaning, I, th- I think this is a, this is an important point people have to realize that there's you're under the natural law, and it's fitting and suitable for what you are as a creature, as a human creature. And if you conform to it, that would be your good. You would be not only righteous before what God demands, but also you would achieve the complete actual good and, and, and happiness. So you'd be perfectly ha- happy with your obedience and conformity to the law, to natural law. Um, and yeah, so I think that's, that's really important. I think nowadays mm-hmm. it seems to me that, that this is not just theonomous, but in general, there, there's not a sense in which 
uh, like Christians don't realize that what God says you ought to do is actually not simply, you, you don't do it, I mean, doing it is not simply an obedience to God as a sort of bare command, as, as if he just commands and you obey and there's no correspondence with your nature as a human being. Um, like you, the, the command to, you know, to, to, to marry and, and have children and form families, uh, that, that is not just a command outside of what we are as created beings. It's, it's, mm-hmm. it's suitable and fitting to what we actually are and conforming to that is for our good. Um, and apart from extraordinary circumstances, conforming t- to that is um, is necessary. So the the idea, the commands of God, then they they suitable, they they comport with our our very nature. Um, so mm-hmm. I don't think people uh, always fully understand that. But and that, that's what I was that actually. I mean, throughout the book, I, I think I make that fairly clear. That um, yeah, and then, and that's why I'll say things like, if something's natural for you, then it's actually for your good. Um, or if it's if it's, na- if it's necessary, if it's necessary for you according to nature, then it's actually necessary for your good. That, that sort of idea. Um, so, mm-hmm. uh, how do I, I get a, oh. Um, I took you but, there. What, what, what was the point though? <laughs> About the presupposition, oh. presupposition, the debates that I'm Yeah, seeing. yeah, so the whole Thomas thing, I, I think that's all just, I think that's a bunch of theonomists who want to find a label for me. Everyone affirmed natural law. Calvin affirmed it. Everyone affirmed natural law until the 20th century. Um, I haven't, so no one's shown me otherwise and I can demonstrate to myself and others. And so I, I think it's a, it's a 20, 20th century reform thing where they, the categories of nature started to be rejected. And that's where you led to theonomy and, and presuppositionalism. Like all those things go together with see. the premise. So, but, but, but all those things, like prior to that, everyone firmed natural law. So. I mean, the rejection of natural mm. law is like a, it's a Kantian thing. Like it's a, it was this, it, it was like this, um, it's like a Humean Kantian thing to kind of reject that there's a teleology and there's a natural law and that people could somewhat know, know of it. And that, that's why people like Van Til has been accused of kind of being Kantian. Um, I, I mean, I don't know a lot about that, but that, that makes sense that, that you look at, look, he's, he's rejecting, seemingly rejecting these categories of nature. Um, and then uh, that, that fits with, something like a Kantian ethics. Maybe it does. I I don't know. I'm going to give people hate mail for that, but I'm just saying, I'm just reporting the facts that people have accused presuppositionalists of, of having at least very similar premises to Kantian, like some Kantian Mm -hmm. theory. Well, I, I, one of the things I really appreciate about the book is that it's a window into, you know, various strains of theological, academic, philosophical, political, um, theory, let's say, evolving over a long period of time that I have no experience in that in reading the book, I can, I can sort of perceive some of the streams that I might not otherwise see. And so one of the things I wanted to thank you about is, is that as a result of these critiques that people have leveled and, and having read the book, because I've, I've actually had to dig into this distinction for myself. And so it's been very educational for me to see, you know, the ways that the ways of knowing, let's say. And I also, I also appreciate your response as well, because I've been curious that these things sometimes get launched. It's like, well, What's the actual, so I appreciate your response. Yeah, and one of the reasons why I, I footnoted it so heavenly, heavenly, <laughs> so heavily, <laughs> uh, <laughs> yeah, um, was not to like show my reading, but it's because I knew, right. I knew in the reformed world that some of the claims that I was making 
violated what people perceive to be Reformed theology, but it's really just their 20th century Reformed upbringing. And so that's why whenever it was a claim theological, I was like, I'm just going to pile on the quotes. Um, And I could have done even more. Mm -hmm. uh, But it actually didn't stop the criticism. And this was one of the frustrating things about all that is people would say this or that is not Reformed. But they they never or they didn't like this or that ab- about my theology. But then they they never acknowledged that. Wait a second, like I'm quoting Turretin, uh, what's Maestrich? I always forget to say his name. Van Maestrich, um, quoting uh, Calvin and you know um, Vermigli, and so it's like a Junius. Uh, so um, if you're going to criticize me, that's fine. I mean, you can disagree with anything you want, but at least acknowledge that that. Um, I'm citing other people as well. So don't don't freak out about Wolf Claims X when X was claimed by everyone from Calvin to Charles Hodge. <laughs> so, um, mm-hmm, yeah. Mm-hmm. And just to tip my own hand a little bit, I think one of the things that I've been frustrated about having read the book and enjoyed it, and even if, even if you and I never talked, the, the fighting off of the labels that s- seems to me has to be done in order to give the ideas themselves a fair he- a hearing totality of national action, you know, to procure for itself, both earthly and heavenly good in Christ. Like, can we look at that? Can we look at that idea? Mm-hmm. But it seems like, Oh, it's, you know, the, the wrong, like, it's the wrong way of knowing it's the wrong label. It's like, but okay, sure. Cool. But can we talk about this idea? Right. And so that's, yeah. that's one of the reasons I wanted to have this conversation was so that we could push those aside and talk about the mechanics of what you, what you'd written. Yeah, I, I appreciate that. I mean, one of the, yeah. So um, I think one thing people didn't realize or didn't care to think hard enough about was that it's, it's like it's like ten pages plus an introduction and epilogue, or ten, sorry, ten uh, chapters, and mm. nine of those ten chapters uh, almost entirely deal with non-American co- uh, context. And you, you get the book at first, and you think it's going to be a long screed about why America is a Christian nation and we're abandoned by the devil secularists or something like that. I, I, that, that people thought it was going to be that. Um, I, I didn't do the cover. I like the cover, but it kind of gives that false impression that it's going to be 10 chapters of yeah. anti, like or pro Christian America. Um, but it's, it's nine chapters of, of the Christian political theory. And then there's a 10th chapter where I deal with the United States and that covers uh, kind of early new England um, up to the founding. Uh, and the main point of that chapter is simply to show that, hey, within this, I mean, I could have gone in the 19th century and done more there, but I, I just did, with, did with, between New England and part of that, part of that chapter is actually, actually that chapter is a condensed version of two chapters of my dissertation. Um, but yeah, the mm-hmm. point was to bring um, the American tradition into what I said from chapter one through nine and say, mm-hmm. you know, you don't have to be a bad American to affirm what I said in the previous chapters. Okay, so that was the intent there. So th- that's the first point: is that this is meant to be applicable everywhere. It's meant to be a universal Christian political theory, and then you apply it in different places. And this is where the, the second thing people don't understand is just because I say that in principle you can punish uh, heresy, that you can even execute heretics, that you can in principle even compel people to attend church. Just because I say all those things are okay in principle does not mean that it is suitable for every circumstance or every location or every tradition or every people. Mm-hmm. Um, in the American context, because of our, our tradition of religious liberty, most of those things won't fly. Um, and I was 
I thought clear enough within the chapters where I, like even in the civil law chapter, I say something to the effect of, I know all of you want me to give you a list of laws, a list, like a blueprint. What, what should we do now? Like what should be the law tomorrow? And I res- resisted that. And I said, it depends on the people, the circumstances, the way of life, the traditions, the customs, you know, what works in Hungary is not going to work in the United States. What works in uh, Georgia is not going to work for Oregon or, or wherever, uh, or Montana. Like it, it, it's going to be different in different places. And so that, that in this sense, you have to, you have to distinguish um, principle and prudence. So a lot of things are permissible in, in principle. I mean, a huge amount of things are permissible mm-hmm. in principle, um, but not everything is prudent. And prudence in, in politics is you devising w- uh, the best means to achieve the, the end that you're seeking. So if you're in a place that is highly religiously diverse and you are Presbyterian and you want to show up and say, you know, crowd and covenant, you want to make everything Presbyterian, force it upon, there's only 2% of you are Presbyterian, somehow you got power and now you're going to force Presbyterianism on 98 of the population, guess what? It's not going to work. It's probably going to be bad for you and your churches and it's going to either overthrow the government or it'd probably harm you as a church. So if you do that, that policy, no matter how righteous you think it is, in the end, it's going to not only fail, but probably produce more harm, do more harm than good. So prudence mm-hmm. then is you looking at the best means to the end, given the, given the circumstances on the ground. And sometimes that might mean, hey, most of us are Congregationalists, and we're in New England, and Aaron in the wilderness in Connecticut, Massachusetts, we're basically by ourselves. Let's form a congregationalist polity and and call this, you know, Puritan New England or whatever. They didn't call it that, but, you know, th- then you find yourself in another place, like, uh, I, I don't know, to the United States today, you're not going to establish universal congregationalism uh, and uh, it, would be, it would be bad in the end. So th- there's wide latitude. I mean, there's like the wide possibilities, but not not everything is possible given circumstances and what's the prudent thing is you devising the proper means to achieve the best possible outcome, the the good, even if that, even if you achieve a lower good than what an ideal situation would permit, it's better to, to do a lesser good than to do no good at all or, or to make things worse. Mm -hmm. Um, Mm -hmm. And there's also like, even within like executing heretics, uh, I mean, that that might have uh, that might have been good, maybe in Geneva or something like that. But then eventually, Protestants were able to realize that actually they can get along pretty well with one another. So I talk about this in in the tenth chapter between the Congregationalists and the Baptists in early New England, where they there were sort of pers- you know they wouldn't call persecutions, but there were you know civil action against Baptists in the 1670s and earlier. Uh, but then by 1715 that area you have uh you have cotton mather giving the ordination sermon for a baptist minister in boston so just a few decades earlier you had cotton's father increase actually part of the suppression of baptist but then who's in who's in the church that day when what's his name john calendar i believe was was installed ordained Hmm. by cotton mather or at least he gave the sermon um in the in the in the pew witnessing that ordination was increased matter. So you can see that, like, mm-hmm. to me, that's a, that's 
uh, a, a, a like a symbol of Protestants saying, "Wait a second, we can actually get along. We can have this pan-Protestant order. We can tolerate one another. We can affirm each other's mutual faith, and so we don't actually need need to suppress uh, each other's." Um, religion or something like that. I mean, uh, a lot of congregations might not have liked it entirely, but they saw it as just kind of necessary given the circumstances to just kind of, oh, tolerate. But anyway, that's the idea. You have principle and then you have prudence. Um, so what's, yeah. So I'm not trying to reinstall Geneva, but then this goes into the third one. I, I keep going on and on. But this is the third, the third problem. This is usually where I start blocking people on Twitter. I can explain that distinction <laughs> over and over and over. I can say it's in the book. It's not just me hiding something. It's in the book. I can give that explanation. It doesn't matter. Like they'll 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 still cite the passage where I'm going to execute heretics or restraining false religion right. or compulsing compulsory church attendance or all these things. It doesn't it doesn't matter. And so uh, that that's that's been one of the frustrating things um, that that people would just no matter what I'd say like look. Not only would I clarify, I'd, I'd just show that they're misreading, uh, and they would just keep mm -hmm. repeating it. So that's been one of the frustrations. And when someone when someone isn't able to like take a clarification, then that's clear that they're out to just kind of harm you. So that this is yeah. and this is just like a tip for everyone. Uh, if if you're going to criticize people. And you're you're willing to kind of reach out to say you said this. Am I understanding correctly? If someone says some person says no, that's not the case. I affirm this, 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 and this is blah blah blah. Then work off their clarification or or work off how they're you know what I mean. So don't, uh, yeah, like try like go into a conversation, seeing if you can understand what they're trying to say better, and then criticize that idea instead of taking like the worst version of of. Uh, of it. I mean, I, th there is even like a presentation someone did where they're doing these things and then like halfway through they show a picture of Hitler. <laughs> it's just like, come on, um, you know. <laughs> Godwin, everything. Yeah. No, at the risk of making light of a very real uh, phenomenon, that's true. I tweeted uh, a couple days ago, when a man is determined to misunderstand something, there's no force in the universe that can overcome him. And it is a tragedy of a lot of the dialogue that ha seems to happen online is people don't genuinely want to understand what someone tries to say from their own words mm -hmm. and instead just continues to level attacks and it ends up wasting everybody's time when we could be talking about more productive kind of ideas. Yeah, and I'm, I'm not, like when people say that like Christian nationalism is scary um, or they, they, they don't like it, um, I, I don't say like no, it's not scary for for people like that. Like, I think <laughs> um, so. What sure. um, it's not like I think you, you can disagree. I mean, obviously people can like disagree and try to refute it, but I think some people would be legitimately not like it. I think people who are in charge now, yeah. who are either not Christian or Christian want secularism, they will not like it. And I'm not going to try to say that they would like it or that it's not scary to them. If you're in power and you um, like policy xyz and i think all three of those are evil and should be eradicated well then you should be concerned that i'm gonna that me or my ideas are gonna show up and eradicate those so i um mm -hmm. I, I i don't have any interest in trying to lessen people's concerns if they are yeah if they understand exactly what I, i'm saying uh and uh so but but yeah i mean they should be i i think there's I want a Christian as opposed to a neutral or secular 
uh, order. So uh, I would I would like to see local school districts that are Christian um, and that you have public schools. I know that even the reform world, people like public schools, but if you have public schools, I want to, I want to at least bring it, bring back the idea that you have Christmas events at the end of um, in, in December or you, some, some sort of basic Christian instruction in school or prayers or something like that. Um, yeah, I, I do want all those things. So if that scares someone, so then I don't I. know what to tell them. <laughs> I'm not, but, uh, yeah, yeah, I agree, and and you touch on that at the end. I I, I know we're we're racing the sun a little bit, so so I, I think the part that that where the the place where what you're talking about really touches down in terms of scaring people, um, rightly or wrongly, is is uh, conducted by a Christian nation as a Christian nation. Yeah. This fundamental affirmation of is this is who we are and this is what we do, and by being this and doing this, we are not that, and we do not do that. And I think that makes people that makes people get pretty weird. And, um, but that assertion is very powerful and I think in a good way. Yeah. So it means that, that in its totality, something is Christian. Um, that, that doesn't mean that every yeah. individual is, has to be Christian. So, I mean, you just take most of American history, uh, everyone understood the country to be a Christian country. Um, yet you had Jews who had full voting rights and, and, and at times had public office. There's nothing in itself wrong with that. Um, but, um, I, I don't know what they would have said if it's a Christian country or not. I assume they probably would have. Um, but so it doesn't ex- necessarily exclude people's full participation in civic life, um, and there should be allowances for kind of exemptions. So instead of the Christian exempting from the pride event or the Christian exempting from this or that teaching in public school, it should be the non-Christian who says, "I don't want to participate in, in your Christmas your Christmas play or or your 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 prayers or this or that." And yeah. he's like, "Okay, well, then don't. Uh, you don't have to." But they would be the exception instead of the Christians. Everyone else would then uh, be be uh, participate in it. Um, so, yeah, and um, but but people don't like that idea because that that means that they that uh, that if you're a non-Christian, then you really don't have a a uh, a significant say in the direction and the policy of the nation itself. Uh, or that at least you have to conform to something you're not uh, in, in, in its totality. Like you can still say we should have fishing licenses for fishing, uh, um, but but that doesn't mean you're going to change maybe like a Sabbath law because you don't you don't like it or because you're not Christian. So um, what's going to happen anyway? Like if, I, if, if kids have to conform to the latest LGBT whatever, yeah. right? Like we will be conformed to something. We cannot be conformed to nothing. So are we going to make an affirmative choice of, of what people are going to be conformed to? That seems to be the only question, not whether, but which. Right? Yeah, and, and Christians have to, this is one of the problems, and th- this would have been decades ago, people would have been perfectly fine with this, but um, the kind of the younger boomer generation and all the rest of the generations have, they grew up in a very secu- a secular time in which institutions were essentially de-Christianized. The nation was in a way de-Christianized. Mm-hmm. The United States the people believed that they were a Christian nation well into the 1950s and beyond. And, uh, mm-hmm. but once all the sec- the desecular or the secularization happened, people became accustomed to the idea that of course you don't have prayer over the loudspeakers in the morning, or of course you don't have any sort of catechism. There's no self understanding of, of, of institutions as Christians. Of course you don't do that. It's offensive. You can't, but it was just that that would have been well accepted for the vast majority of our history 
And so we have to train ourselves. Like this is, I said, I think it was early on, I said something like the psychological habit conservatives have. Well, even socialized to think, well, of course it has to be neutral or secular or religion can't be in schools and right. this and that. That's just good Americans. Well, no, mm-hmm. <laughs> no. Um, mm-hmm. uh, I was watching a, a, something last night on YouTube and the guys were saying that in the Ivy Leagues, 100 years ago, in Ivy League schools, he was talking about Duke specifically, and saying that it was it was they had compulsory chapel attendance a hundred over a hundred years or a hundred years ago I don't know when it stopped but they had compulsory com- compulsory chapel and um, uh, attendance for all like Ivy League schools state schools would have it um, just a hundred years ago um, and then they started kind of to actively admit non Christians and and there's a whole sort of history with that and eventually went away. But the point of the, the point it was just it was just obvious that even if you wanted to be an elite in society, you had to be in some way grounded in religion, even if it was kind of like moralistic uh, and cultural rather than kind of convictional in its theology. But um, yeah, I'm, so the the point is we need to recover that. Like that needs to be something that we as Americans recover. And conservatives have to be very self conscious of the fact that they're. Their rejection of that, their instinctive type of rejection, is not their good theology. It's not that they have good political theory or they're a good flag waving American. No, it's that you've been engineered in your mind to think that way and you need to reject it. You need to critique it in your own mind and say, no, that is not true. It's not even American. The, the American tradition is a Christian tradition, institutional, the institutional history of the United States. From academic institutions to government institutions, is a Christ, is a Christian history, um, and only very recently has that changed. Once you realize that, then you realize that no, in, ter- in, in relation to the rest of Americans' history, you are weird. You're an anomaly. You're abnormal. <laughs> so, be normal. And to be normal is to say, no, this is a Christian country. We want Christian institutions. And if someone doesn't like it, they can be exempt from it and not complain about it, otherwise they're booted out. Uh, so that's mm-hmm. it. Um, so I, I mean, what's the way forward now? Do I want, uh, let's do the First Amendment just because I can keep talking. <laughs> um, the the First Amendment. Please. So the First Amendment says Congress, right? So it, it constrained Congress. Um, it didn't constrain anyone else. I saw your tweet I, about I've been going that. on that. Because I was like, the First Amendment, you're not a good American. Like, okay, well. Yeah, uh, there was What's there the were state word? establishments uh, until the 1830s. Um, one of the architects of the First Amendment, uh, which, by the way, Jefferson was not even in the country when it was written and ratified, but one of the architects of the First Amendment was Roger Sherman. People don't know him very well, but he was a Connecticut um, statesman. And he wrote the laws of Connecticut and explicitly said that you can you can fund churches through public money or you can be taxed to fund churches like they most uh, many states did back then so he was an, so he if he looked at the first amendment he wrote that and he affirmed it well what did it mean it meant that it wasn't disestablishment in principle first amendment said that we have a federal system with 13 different states with different uh traditions from quakerism to pennsylvania to congregationalism in um Massachusetts, Connecticut, to Anglicanism in Virginia, and a, a whatever smattered of Anglican and Presbyterian Baptists all the, down south and other places, and then you have Rhode Island, all these very differences, these big differences. And, and the idea was that we don't want, like one way to preserve this thing 
was to ensure that the federal level was not going to favor any denomination over another. Because then that would mean if the Congregationalists got in power, then they would start favoring Congregationalism of Massachusetts and Connecticut. So it was a way to ensure disestablishment of the federal level as a practical matter of preserving a union in which there was religious diversity. Once people realize that, then no, it's not disestablishment in principle, meaning that it enacted a principle of like of America of, of secularism. It was a it was a practical oh, okay. matter. Now, eventually, all the states did disestablish by their own choice, not by Supreme Court, not by federal mandate, but by their own state choice to do that. But the country remained, even in a way, some people have said that in a way, America became more Christian in the 19th century. There, there's a letter near the end of his life. Madison wrote to, I forget who it was, but he was writing to a friend. And he said that disest- like instead of Madison saying, oh, finally, there's all this disestablishment so that re- you know, the Christian religion can take its subordinate seat in the country. He said, no, since disestablishment has happened, guess what? Religion has flourished in the country. Because, because Madison's idea, even going back to when, when he was writing about this in the um, 1780s, was that establishment harms religion. It's better for religion to not have this formal connection to the state. So he actually thought it was better for Christian religion to be kind of dis- disestablished. And then later on in life, at the end of his life, he's saying, look, disestablishment actually did. Now, you, like, we can debate all these things, but the fact is, like, 19th century, there was high religiosity in the United States. Tocqueville recognized this, and there was a sense in which we, uh, everyone affirmed that we were a Christian nation. And um, so even with disestablishment, um, and anyway, the, so the First Amendment was never kind of this, this secularizing principle that says that any time a guy quotes the Bible or a state senator in Oklahoma wants to do this and that and he appeals to the Bible, none of that is covered under the First Amendment. No one would have thought that uh, that, that, was, that was restricted. So um, anyway, mm-hmm. but, but yeah, so the, the, the fact of the matter is Christian nationalism in the American form can take a very 19th century form in which there may not be any formal de- denominational connection between church and state, but there can be a, a national sense of being Christian, and it can be very far more social than it is legal. I do think legally there should be Sabbath regulations. Um, there should be Sabbath mm-hmm. laws, and I think some, some blasphemy laws as well. But, 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 but uh, the, the ideal would be a 19th century in which Christians or the nation understands itself as Christian. And, uh, and that, yeah, uh, that, that's kind of like what, what I envision hopefully for the, the future is restoring some version of that. It seems like some of this is tied to some of the posts, the, the, the young boomers, as you said, being afraid of the, the term fascism, right? They're afraid of the term nationalism for this reason, afraid of America having a distinct identity as opposed to like no identity that ends up being a hodgepodge of a bunch of different anti-Christian identities really. It seems like there's that that's where a lot of that fear is rooted versus like, well, maybe we can actually say who we are because once upon a time we did say who we are because yeah. like, this is who we were. So why can we not say it now? And again, just quickly, having been around the world, other nations do not have a problem with saying this is who we are. Yeah. And I've been, I've, I've seen this firsthand for myself and somehow there's this, a double standard applied to America and Americans not being able to say who we are. I know it's a more complicated question than that, but it's all, it's been odd to me since being back in the States. Yeah, I mean, there are just there are 
subversive forces in our country and they they have like they have an interest in in um essentially not only separating religion from from our our own self-understanding but also kind of balkanizing or like the yeah yeah, kind of like balkanizing the country itself and i mean you, you like the nation of immigrants rhetoric um, when it's we're actually a nation of settlers, and then there's been immigrants since then, um, mm. and yeah, so th- there is like this this drive to kind of dis to, to um, deracinate to use a to a word uh, deracinate me sure. to un- uproot or unroot a people uh, from from their roots from from their soil and their people, and there, there's a concerted effort for that. Uh, and yeah, and that's part of my argument is that no, like you need to, what well, was once kind of unconscious, the sense of which, yeah, my grandpappy told my pappy this and this, and it came down to me and then and he worked this land and, and I, I'm from this place and that, like that, that was all, all kind of unconscious. Um, not, not entirely, but it was kind of was, but now it has to come to like consciousness. Like now we have to actually self-consciously identify and try to form uh, type of people so we can re- resist some of these forces. Um, and yeah, I, we can't just kind of, uh, and we have to, someone, I, I, don't, I didn't, this is not my idea, but I guess it's older, but the, it's the people who care the most are going to win. So this is why liberals mm. win. This is why the left wins. Um, in some ways they are, they're able to win because they have nothing else to live for. Uh, oftentimes mm-hmm. they, they're the childless. Yeah. Um, they're the single. Um, so, they are, and so they're they're willing to, yeah. That, that's all they have. Whereas Christians tend to have a vocation, family, uh, church, other activities that give a meaning. Um, but uh, in in our day and age, we have to find ways to care more <laughs> than the left, mm-hmm. and uh, and and how, and what that looks like for each person is going to be different. Um, but uh, we have to we have to yeah care more. So mm-hmm. I want to, if we can, there are a couple more topics I want to touch on just very quickly yeah. before you get blinded by the light. <laughs> um, <Yes>. I, <laughs> right. I, I mean, I want to, I want to talk about these. Um, if, if uh, we've done a great job of staying on the highway and not driving a car off a cliff. So I want to try again, uh, not to drive the car off a cliff about the, the accusations of quote kinism. I mean, it just comes up and I think I probably couldn't get, it, would, it wouldn't be appropriate for me not to bring it up. Now I'll, I'll I will say how I think of this. I think of this as, the, as, as that accusation being a natural response, natural not necessarily meaning good in this case, to assertions of identity. That when you, when you assert the, an identity, the way that America works now dial, the, in terms of dialogue is, that will be thrown, and it, fairly or not, in the same way that nationalism gets thrown, in the same way that, say, presuppositional and atomism gets thrown. That it, it, there's a component that it feels like to me, Again, not as the most informed observer of the universe, but there's a, there's a component that it feels like to me that it's, it's another one of the labels that gets thrown to disrupt the conversation about the idea itself, about, about the, the process of a, a nation orienting itself towards the highest good, earthly and heavenly in Christ. Yeah. That, that it disrupts what would otherwise be a productive conversation about using the nation as an instrument not the not the not the sole tool, but like as an instrument to guide people to salvation. That's how it feels to me. Yeah, I, I mean that's yeah that because it works. So you throw out kinism, and then they 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 define it, and it sounds horrible, and then uh, then you're you're stuck with it. You labeled it. 
It's the same thing right. with racism, like toss out racism right. or uh, bigotry or xenophobia, nativism, homophobia, transphobia, all these things. It's all kind of the same. Yeah. It's not meant to actually have a conversation about things. Um, but yeah, if you're going to say some of the things I've said, then yeah, you're going to invite either uh, ignorant people or bad actors start calling names. I mean, kinism actually right. has a historic sort of definition. It tends to be things that I'm not, such as theonomist, <laughs> presuppositionalist. Mm-hmm. Okay. And it tends to want to, it, te- it tends to seem to want to go along racial lines uh, in, in terms of denying kind of race mixing. Um, and so it, 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 it takes certain categories of race, ideas of race, and then and makes an absolute no in relation to those um, mm-hmm. and say it, it's sinful. So I, I've never said anything of that sort. Um, the, what, what the, the reason why people would accuse me of things like kinism uh, is that uh, I, I do think that, I mean, this goes into a longer kind of complex conversation. I, I do think that it matters, y- your blood connection to the place matters. Um, and it's, and this just seems obvious to anyone who's willing to just kind of listen for a moment, which is that if you, if your family, like think of, uh, like if your family owns a piece of property that your grandfather and grandmother bought in the thirties or twenties, or maybe earlier, I'm thinking of a place like, like me in California, um, right. And you grew up there and you remember grandfather, he was on his little mower and, you know, and, and then they had this and that, and you'd play here and there. And, or maybe it's a farm where you remember your grandfather being on that tractor, going to the field and doing this and that, and you, you rode on his lap in the tractor. Uh, even if you don't live or own that land, let's say they sold it, um, and you know you don't have access to it. If you drive by it, that piece of dirt is going to matter to you. You're going to have affections built into that place. And that's mm-hmm. because not simply of this sort of a, I don't know, metaphysical thing of blood relations and he's your blood and your blood. No, it's because he was your grandfather. He had a special affection for you as you being your, your grand, his grandson or granddaughter. And you participate in that life together with them and that place. And so that love that you share between each other, even if he's, he's gone is still alive and it's in a sense like rooted is planted in that place mm-hmm. that if anyone I'm just appealing, like my proof is just simply in people's basic experiences. If you've never experienced that, right. which I'm sure everyone has. And you, and, and you think even in your own life, if you have kids, I mean, people always talk about creating memories, but there's some truth to that, that you, you want to instill this kind of love of, um, like the, the love you have for your children, you kind of want to have lodged in a, in a place, like in a, that they would go back to this place and they'd see it. Oh, remember when dad did f- something funny here, or we did this together, or he said this talk to me, or he corrected me that impacted my life. You know, something like, like, like these things, right? All this stuff matters. And so of course, like blood, you know, like, oh, it's blood and soil. Well, there is some truth to that. There's truth to the fact that the the special natural affection you have between family members of the same blood is 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 in a way lodged in the places in which that love kind of occurred in action. And right. I 
like that's just that's just I'm just trying to appeal to a basic human experience that things that matters that even my critics would admit that that matters. So yes, that that matters. And so that that really right there is the ground of not like genetics, not skin color. That itself is the ground of my entire sense of what a nation is for the most part. Um, that there is this, so it's not as if there's like a genetic test that is, I can show up and say, look, I'm, I'm 70% English or something like that. It's so that you have a special connection and, and this connection extends out to different people in various different, various ways. So everything from grandfathers participating in world war two, you know, like you could, you go to New York, you talk to some old guy, some, some guy whose grandfather, he's, he's Italian and his grandfather fought in World War II. I mean, there's some kind of connection there. Um, and uh, so that there's that national event participation. Then there's the local aspect of maybe your grandfather was part of the Farm Bureau, or maybe he was, uh, um, I, I don't know, he, maybe he was a volunteer firefighter. And I, there's all sorts of things that, that, that instill this love of people in place. And it goes back to history, connected to history that your ancestors are part of. And this means that, People who have different ancestry can actually be received into the, this people and be assimilated through generations, and they're just one of one of us. I, I remember growing up that there was a clear in California. There's a clear difference between people who like, they were Hispanics who had been there for many generations, and then the ones who had literally just arrived. Like there was a very stark difference mm-hmm. in attitudes, and also the way that I could just as a kid interact and play and can kind of do things with play with them um the, the ones who'd been there generations had kind of there's been there's a lot of cultural similarities where we could be friends and not even not even see like genetic differences because we i could interact with them with just as much ease as i could someone who was you know old stock anglo or something like that um mm-hmm. but that wouldn't be the same for someone who was just just arrived and now they're broken English and that sort of thing. So anyway, the, the point mm-hmm. is these people can be received in, but there has to be that like that to, for a, a nation to be hospitable, it has to bring people in, but then expect those people to, if they're going to, if they're going to insist on remaining separate and not assimilating, then they have to expect that they're not going to be fully integrated into the civic way of life and be actually excluded mm-hmm. in ways because mm-hmm. they are refusing to assimilate. And so they, in some ways, would be excluded, but but then there should be in a nation a way to bring someone in such that they would just become one of us without any sort of differentiation or like. So, um, I, I I don't know. I mean, I, yeah. So that the, like the, I mean, I just I, people get get like snapshots of of time, right? So it's like, oh, he said blood and soil, but there's just something to that, right? That doesn't have to be like a biological. Um, principle uh but at the same time is and it is is generational it's built in affections and it brings people together along more than just like a set of propositions you might affirm so i don't know yeah that makes any no, it's be kinist. A, no this really yeah and and so i mean this this lands for yeah me. and intermarriage this and is i thing can about tell you marriage. why yeah go ahead go go ahead well, I was living in New Zealand the second half of 2019, prior to 2020. So I'm from Arizona. I'm from the desert. It looked like I was going to emigrate to New Zealand. 
Now, something that we take for granted in the, nor- in the, nor- the Northern Hemisphere is that Christmas is in the winter. <laughs> in the Southern Hemisphere, Christmas is in the summertime, right? And so think of your associations with the word Christmas. You think snow mm. and reindeer and, you know, whatever, frosty windows and all that stuff. That does not exist in New Zealand. They think of Christmas as summertime. It's the most bizarre thing, right? But that is their attachment to a place and the meaning of something that seems almost universal to the Western experience is completely different. Now, if I had immigrated to New Zealand and, and lived there and continued to insist like, no, winter, like Christmas is a winter holiday, they like, no, it's my responsibility to assimilate into the culture of the nation and celebrate it for what it is. Because I look the same as, as Kiwis, right? I don't talk the same, but even if I developed an accent, if I continued insisting like, nope, you guys just don't understand, Christmas is a winter holiday, they're like, no, <laughs> Christmas is a summer holiday. And that would be profoundly rude on the simple basic thing. And like, I considered it my responsibility to get comfortable with that, but I never knew if I actually could because it's like it's warm and sunny on Christmas day. It made no sense to my, to my brain. But over time, the generations of my potential grandchildren and children and grandchildren would come to understand that. And this, I think this is an example, an, an innocuous one of like, you how can you not want to assimilate into the nation, the culture of a nation and participate in it? That's why are you there? Yeah. <laughs> and this was, cause this is my own experience. Yeah. Um, I, I totally agree. I, and, uh, and that, that was like, even in the American history, it was an expectation of assimilation. There was a lot of force, like the, the, the Germans were a big concern on, uh, not only for the, the founders, but also in the early 19th century, like they, they thought they need, they, we need to anglicize the Germans and uh, it, it kind of happened. Sorry, Lutherans out there, but that's, the, um, it, yeah, as an aside, it is funny. I met with a bunch of Lutherans once uh, a few months ago and they, it was hilarious that like the, I, I was obsessed with like English um, Anglo-American history and they were still stuck in the 16th century and hating on the Anabaptists. <laughs> they, they still had their, their mind was back in the, in that era. But anyway, um, yeah. So the, yeah, it's that. That's I think the a, a nation is cannot be a set of propositions. It's it's something generational. It, I mean, it's a, it's a Burkean ideal. Uh, Edmund Burke famously mm-hmm. said that that society it's like an eternal society, and it's composed of the dead living and yet to be born or un, you know, the unborn. And so we mm-hmm. act in in that regard. Um, so if you, if you take just like you know a property you own. If that property was owned by your grandfather and his grandparents are dead, and now you own it, and you want to, uh, what, what was I doing the other day on my property? I was thinking, actually thinking about, um, I was thinking about what my grandkids would that my grandkids would be the ones who enjoy what I'm about. To, I forget what it was, but th- there's that like in mm-hmm. your mind, you can think generationally, and we can't do that as much because of of reasons of like living in like suburban households and all that, but. Um, but there was that sense, especially for aristocrats that what they're doing today, like planting this tree, I'm 60 years old, I'm planting a tree. This tree is not going to fully receive its, um, it's, it's full height and prowess until I'm long dead. And so my grandkids will be able to Mm -hmm. sit under this oak. Uh, um, Mm -hmm. so yeah, that, that kind of conception, but, but if you're, if your nation's in constant ethnic flux, and and you don't know what it's going to be like 50 years from now, then it's harder than for you to see how you can contribute and kind of work for your 
your grandkids, like work for those, mm-hmm. except, other than to build a bank account, which of course everyone likes. But um, th- there is that sense in which the only thing you can pass on to your kids is a, is a decent monetary inheritance rather than like a, a place in a community that, that has longevity to it. So I don't know that that's yeah, a broader think, discussion that, to talk about, but yeah, no, for sure. And I, th- I think it, I understand why there's the, it creates a sense of friction, a, a, a sense of discomfort for all. I, and, and I get that. And, um, and at, and at the same time, I think it's valid to discuss these ideas because again, other places in the world, they're very real. Yeah. It's, it's very real for, for nations to be able to assert a national identity. New Zealand just being one example. And I can, I can think of plenty others. So this, is, we, this is who we are as a people, and we affirm this and, and not that. And hooray, you know, go the All Blacks, right? It's the, the rugby team. And, and that standard, somehow we can't hold to that standard in the United States. There's some, there's some double standard that's set. And that's, again, that's perplexed me, but I, I recognize that you're, you're about to get blinded. Oh. Um, and so I, I do want to, <laughs> yeah, well, if I, I, mean, I do want to talk to you. Um, I mean, I, again, the definition is, is uh, earthly and, and heavenly good in Christ. I want to talk about that, but also I want to talk about the gynocracy because that's the, I've used that, that passage in the back as a rallying cry for, I've got it highlighted under, I want to talk about both of those if, if, if you have the time available. Uh, yeah, yeah, I can do that. Okay, so let's talk about the earthly and heavenly good in Christ, because I, th- I thought that that particular element of it was the understanding that the nation can, can orient people towards a heavenly goal while not ignoring the earthly good mm-hmm. as well. That synthesis, I thought, was very powerful because it, it, bridged, it bridged a divide that we can actually think about both of these things, and we don't have to get into like a pietistic Gnosticism as the, the phrase that I heard someone use recently. Yeah. I, 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 I think the, the tendency, and this is actually like the far right, the non-Christian right doesn't like Christian nationalism because they think that the Christian just means uh, it's like, all you have to do is be Christian and that's it. Like the, the only thing for a Christian nation is just a bunch of Christians. That's it. Um, but when I, when I distinguish earthly and heavenly good, I, I want to maintain that category of earthly which essentially means that the the principles of earthly life are not eradicated by by grace or by the gospel. So if you have a, a particular way of life, that can be different. One way of life here can be different than there, and that's good. See different styles of clothing, different dress, different languages, um, different c- customs. Like you mentioned, the Christmas and summer in the summer versus Christmas or uh, versus uh, the winter time. So, um, yeah. So that. Uh, but but like grace doesn't eradicate all those things. So I wanted there to be, if you're going to say, yeah, it's a Christian nation, you don't want to then eliminate, destroy the the natural goods uh, that that are st- that remain necessary to, for being human in this world. Okay, so that that's the emphasis. Um, and in that sense, to like like I mentioned, the complete good of a nation, a, a nation that would be perfect in a formal sense, not not necessarily in every part, but would be one that worships God, um, that is a people attend church and worship God, uh, that it has just laws, um, but also that it has a robust cultural life. That that it's and that cultural life, as I said, is distinct from another Christian nation. So you can have dozens of Christian nations. And in each one, if you went from one to the other, you might be kind of bewildered on what to do. Like, I don't understand this custom, this tradition, I don't know the language, and blah, blah, blah. And so you'd be out of place. Even though it's Christian, even though you can have a type of fellowship with them, you would be out of place and you would feel 
like a foreigner. Like there's like foreignness still exists. And so a foreigner can enter. So a, a foreign Christian can, will be a foreigner in your country. You would be a foreigner in their country in the true existential type of sense, not just in a technical legal sense. Um, so, um, yeah, yeah, that's so. Yeah, what did I say? So, worship God, um, just laws, and kind of a robust particular custom uh, would be the complete good. Mm-hmm. And yeah, so the point is, I wanted to maintain the earthly principles that uh, are necessary for our good. If that's kind mm-hmm. of what we get and I, I've, I, yeah, I appreciated that. Ultimately, it all it all ends in the church mm-hmm. as the um, as, as, that people are. are drawn to encouraged towards let's say you know as as the um as the place where where they can be exposed to the ideas that truly give them salvation as opposed to you know we're gonna we're gonna find salvation in the culture we're gonna find salvation in the government it's like no it's here and and the entire thrust of the nation is to drive people to that point and that's that's the entire flow of everyday of everyday life in all of its in all of its particulars you've mentioned the the sabbath like you're you getting a good night's sleep the night before and having a good breakfast and getting dressed Mm. like these are not like that's not going that's not the same as church but all these things are good things that orient you towards the proper experience of church the proper experience of fellowship and worship yeah and and, uh, that vision i i really i really liked it i'm I'm not gonna lie as a as a national project yeah and i think i think what you yeah the way you described it is exactly what i'm getting at um and yeah, um, yeah, that, that's right. I don't know. I, I don't have anything else to add. Are we are we on to the gynocracy now? We got. <laughs> let's we got to end about with the, the, let's talk about the, the, gyno- the exciting gynocracy. Yeah. Um, exactly, <laughs> the red meat for the bros. Yeah, uh, yeah. I think er- early on when the book first came out, I, I was interviewed by a guy, and actually everyone knows him now. But I was interviewed by a guy and he wanted to talk about the gynocracy for like three quarters of the time. It was like the first one was like, mm. Oh, you wrote a book in Christian nationals. Well, okay. Uh, definition. Okay. All right, all right. All right. Now let's get into the real good stuff. The gynocracy. Um, mm. now, uh, this is only, only covered for about five minutes here, but yeah, gynocracy is like a rule by women. It's an older term. And, uh, it, it, I think that in many of your institutions, there is a type of gynocracy that's occurred. So the, even yeah. if men are in charge, it's still geared towards certain feminine tendencies. So there, I, th- I think, um, yeah, so there's what, what highly kind of bureaucratic sense, uh, like the, uh, like a HR, HR driven, uh, like a, a nanny kind of like everything's regulated under a process. So, so, uh, hiring, firing, uh, promotion, Everything. I mean, it's not only this also bureaucracy, but it's like this mm-hmm. egalitarian processes that then can be tweaked. So instead of having like higher hierarchy formation in a company where someone exceeds and does really well, and and your tendency is to then promote, given someone's just just their performance as you've witnessed it, everything has to be brought down in this process such, such that you can manage outcomes under like a type of rubric and but so that's one thing but there's also just the um i don't know it depends on the institution of what we're talking about i mean there's like mm-hmm. like joe rigney wants to talk about empathy so i think that in a yeah. in a society in which women are very powerful 
you're gonna have uh, you're gonna have an overemphasis on on empathy, and it's going to be destructive and self-destructive. So I think the the fact that women tend to support uh, like transgenders in sports is one of those I call it a gynocratic contradiction, where they'll support something that actually harms them and destroys the very yeah. thing that they actually be- they benefited from. So female sports was a sort of accomplishment of the last few decades, but then they then enact policy that destroys that themselves. Um, they, they're willing to be through empathy, empathy, empathy to have more leniency on criminality, to let someone go because well, they're misunderstood or because we need to be lenient or this and that. That actually goes back to harm women um, because they're the ones really that uh, they're often the victims of, of violence from from men. So if there's more empathy towards them, then they feel more. So there, there's just these these kind of like contradictions. Um, I mean, even in academia, you have uh, we see this with people like Dumez and others where they they write scholarship that's objectively not very good. Um, it captures the hearts and minds of a lot of uh, women of a similar disposition. And then people uh, read it and say this is not good, and they and men would write a review and say this is not good, and then they would just be attacked relentlessly by by the women, and then men would get involved because then the men then realize that wait the power of an institution is actually on the side of women. So if I take the side of the women, that's my source of power, and so I'm going to attack these yeah. other these men, and so they just get beat down and bombarded the the men who critiqued. But in, then in the end. Uh, it's the the contradiction is in the fact that women can write you know lousy scholarship or lousy books and lousy works, uh, and no one's going to criticize them. They're just going to get universally praised and get all their gold stars because who wants to face that onslaught of angry women plus the kind of white knight men? Um, and so mm-hmm. people can do horrible scholarship and they get and oh it's great it's great just praise praise up and down. Um, I mean, this is also true for not just women, but also like like not non-white authors as well. You can't crit- you criticize them when you're racist or something like that. So um, it, it's a yeah, it's a contradiction. So it, like in the end, um, it, it 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 just creates worse work for them and an unwillingness to actually get in the conversation in a seriously constructive way uh, in in academia. So there's more to it than that. I think I mentioned it all in the book. Um, yeah. But yeah, I think it's bad news. I mean, one of the things we're seeing now is that the like more and more women are single, and the the first most reliable democratic voting block is our our blacks. So they they ninety percent vote for Democrats, but now the second most reliable are single white women, <laughs> single yeah. college educated white women. More women are going to college. Yeah. Those women are not getting married, and now they are voting for Democrats. So if you look at the that that's a, a force to be reckoned with. And again, like the sort of policies that they advocate for are those gynocratic self-destructive policies. And so you'll see that more and more um, in policy. Where, whereas men tend to be more assertive in your face. Men tend to be more interested in, in excluding. They, they are more interested in hierarchy formation. They're more interested in having like individual a- achievement and something you can see and, and, and uh, have it as a symbol of a product of your work uh whereas women tend to be more more inclusive more empathetic and have a 
yeah, more of a sort of participation trophy type of <laughs> attitude, of, <laughs> I, I guess. So uh, I, I think our society would be better if we, and certainly our society would be better if we had a more exclusivist ap- a- attitude, a more assertive attitude, a less passive aggressive means of settling disputes and, do- and doing de- deliberation, um, a way of not thinking that any criticism is actually a personal criticism uh, of of kind of being embarrassed when people become hysterical over the fact that someone criticized you. Uh, it would just be better if we had that that mm. system. And and the more the more you have as like a feminine force within society, you're going to get more passive aggression, more contradictions, and just uh, so. Yeah, am I getting canceled? What what am I getting canceled from? The the light. The lights oh, just yeah. about on me, so I'm, I'm canceled. <laughs> Blinding, yeah. You canceled. Examining Moscow is going to find me now. Whoever that is, that miserable woman behind that, <laughs> that Twitter account. Oh, my goodness. Imagine being these people. <laughs> yes. um, uh, yeah. they, they go after Brandon. They, I think they went after Brandon Lansdowne from Reformation Coffee. for. They went after him, too, and his coffee sales doubled. Or oh, yeah. Like Might be making... Yeah, yeah, exactly. They're, they're just all, I, I they're all deeply unhappy. I don't mean this as an insult. It's just evident in the behavior. Mm-hmm. They can't get a joke. It's just true. They are obsessive. Um, yeah. So it's it's it, it's sad. It's it's pretty it's pretty sad. But you know those people that when you have when you have an army of sad kind of lonely miserable people or bitter people, you can do Facebook mobs like and you can go after people yeah. and uh, and then you have the the weak men who will listen to them and that's uh, that's how things happen it's it's pretty pathetic but i mean it's there's a power in it it's a pathetic power but it's a power nevertheless that you can have an <laughs> army of mentally ill people who then influence mentally weak people um and then actually harm people and then they gloat over it so yeah anyway um <laughs> the long the, arm of pathetic power yeah no it, it is it's a it's a it's like a it's a, a passive aggressive like they, they think that they're open and but it's really this like, oh my goodness, look what they said. And then you have an army of people saying, oh my goodness, look what they said. And then you have like, you know, a, a Danny yeah. Akins of the world, uh, free, <laughs> or the, like, people like that, like men who are just weak in, in, in the face of these sorts of women. And they uh, end up doing a lot of harm to their institutions and to, anyway, yeah. Yeah. And that's, I think, the core offense of the book really is that, you know, to assert, Christianity against feminism and to assert nationalism against whatever its opposition, the opposite of nationalism is lack of identity, you know, is, is a, this is how I see it as a pushback on the, the feminizing, you know, the feminist feminizing inclusivist kind of attitude. It's like, no, we are a nation and it is a Christian nation and we will orient people towards earthly and heavenly good in Christ. That I think is the core offense against the gynocracy that's is where i think all the energy comes from and the pushback is it's the it's the real god of of the world for the moment right yeah and i and i mean the 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 kind of the assertive christian man who wants to say no to the yeah to to the secularism to the degeneracy to the false worship to the false religion to the 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 um the uh forced neutrality and secularism that that assertiveness and the willing to say no and that exclusivism, it runs counter to the the, the gynocratic type inclusivist rhetoric, um, which is which is really not it's inclusivist to certain people, um, 
but it's it's actually in itself it's a way of channeling bitterness against the group they dislike the most which is the white male so like most like gynocracy even if they're like white women it's a way of using their inclusivist posture to to harm the white male uh, and that's 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 right. the purpose it's like channeling their bitterness so it's i mean even if they're married it's like a way to like the to uh to attack mm-hmm. to attack their their resent it's a it's a it's a a, a, a um, like a way or it's a weapon of their for their resentment to exact it upon anyway mm-hmm. so ultimate yeah. exclusive ultimately yeah that's it yeah but it's well yeah, thank it's you so much and anyway. yeah that's it yeah it's dinner it's, time for yeah. me boom all right thank you yeah. so much sir i really appreciate the generosity of your of your time um where would you like to send people to find out more about you and what you do um i guess i'm on i'm on twitter so you can find me on twitter <laughs> i've heard i'm the I've guy a uh, few followers on there and then uh american reformer i'm not formally involved with them but i've written several articles recently for them over the last few months so american reformer and follow yeah follow american reformer in general it's a really it's the best uh christian outlet for good, good articles so follow them um that's about all i got yeah. Excellent. Well, thank you so much. Sir. This has been this has been brilliant. I really appreciate your time and I really appreciate your book. Yeah, thank you. Glad glad to be a part of it. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Renaissance of Men podcast. Visit us on the web at renofmen.com or on your favorite social media platform at Ren of Men. This is The Renaissance of Men. You are the Renaissance.